chips that work in last. We've prayed, so let's go ahead and receive the offering. Give, give Pastor Dick a big hand as he comes, will you? Good evening. Tonight we continue our three-part series in building relationships that work and last. I started this series by saying to you there are two things we have to deal with all of our lives. Relationships and money. One of those will make us rich. I just leave that with you. When we spoke last time, we talked to you out of Philippians 1 through 11. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to just turn there with me. I want to read the verses for you one more time. Uh, you just heard one verse quoted by Scott over there in the baptismal tank. But listen to how it um, uses uh, plurals in starting this. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, that is, whether I'm in prison or out, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Last time we were together, we, uh, we said we were going to talk about relational baseball. I'd like to continue playing baseball tonight. If this is the baseball diamond, I've got these fancy new markers, so I'm just going to play with them tonight. First base that we talked about last time. Anybody remember what first base was? History giving. That all relationships... Start with telling somebody's story when you share your stories with each other. And I just listed, and I'm going to do it again real quickly. I just listed three or four reasons why history giving is important. First of all, it's biblical. The Bible is a history book. It's God's story of working with human beings over thousands of years. And when you read his story, no pun intended on history, but when you read his story... It helps you understand why he thinks the way he thinks and why he cares for us and why he sees us as important to him. It's biblical. It's natural. It's much better not to start with, what do you do for work? It's much better to start with, where were you born and brought up? Or what was it like in your town? Or how many kids were there in your family? It's just a natural place to start because everybody was born and brought up. Not all of us want to talk about our work. So it's just a natural place to start. I talked about two libraries. That we have one library that happens to be what we call secondary resources. You can check that out at the local library or you can 
get it over at the university. The primary resources are the people you're sitting next to. Those are, those are primary resources. I was talking to a friend tonight who grew up on a ranch in California, and I was just listening to his stories about what it was like growing up back in the 30s and 40s near Monterey, California. And you just learn a lot when you listen to somebody's story like that. Some of us are concerned about scars. And my observation was scars are not bad. They just tell you where you don't want to go again. And that, that uh, everybody's scarred. If you're looking for somebody who's not scarred, you're on the wrong planet. And Jesus understands about scars. And the last point was very simply that some of us say, well, I'm trapped by my history. And my observation was you can be trapped by your history. But you don't have to be. We'll have communion a little later, and that indicates that Jesus takes care of my history. But I am absolutely shaped by my history. So that's where we were the last time. Let me now go to second base. Second base is this $4 word, affirmation. Affirmation is a $4 word that means I like you. Okay? No relationship works without affirmation. I didn't marry Ruth Blakely 45 years ago for her to tell me what I'm not. I know what I'm not. I desperately need somebody to tell me who I am or how they see me in positive terms. The problem is we don't always know how to take affirmation. Somebody walks up to you after this time and says, hey, John, I like you. And John says, well, you don't know me. Like, If you knew me, you wouldn't like me. You know. Or the other thing is why? Why do you like me? We all want to know why we're worth liking. I remember this time I'm just laying here and Ruth's right there and I'm just going to sleep. You know how it is. You married guys, you're just fading off. You're down in that twilight zone, fading down. And I said, love you, hon. And she said, how come? And I'm going, uh, and I'm clawing my way up out of the darkness, you know, because you got to say some good stuff. I, you know, if you don't, I've seen guys get beat up real bad when they don't say good stuff. We all want to know why we're worth liking. This idea of affirmation is essential to who God is. As I watched the baptisms tonight, uh, I was struck again by the fact that when Jesus is baptized in Scripture, that when he goes into the water and comes up, there's a voice from heaven, from the Father, that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Now, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He's just getting started in the redemption mission. And before he even starts, the father says to him, in our terms, he hasn't done anything. The father says to him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The ultimate kind of affirmation. When we talk about the end of time, the ultimate accolade will be well done, good and faithful servant. Just want to say four things about affirmation tonight. The first one is, and I'm going to illustrate these with Jesus and Peter, and also from the text we just read. Listen to how Paul says it. I thank my God every time I remember you. That's history giving. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I want to talk to you about four kinds of affirmation. The first one is words to God about you. Words to God about you. That's commonly what we call prayer. 
Listen to Jesus talking to Peter in Luke, the 22nd chapter, verses 31 and 32. This is what he says to Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And I take that to mean that he keeps the bad stuff and throws away the good, okay? Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have what? I've prayed for you. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. This, it's, it's the highest affirmation he can give us. Let me just observe what words to God about us is. Prayer does not set our value. It does not set our value. What it does is to recognize it. Prayer recognizes our value. When you say, say to somebody, I'll pray for you, it, that can be just kind of a comma in an evangelical sentence, I'll pray for you. But if you mean it, what you're saying is, I'm going to be talking to the creator of the universe this afternoon, you know, the one who speaks galaxies into existence, and I'd like to bring your name up. I'd like to, I'd like to bring your stuff to him. Now, now, he already knows, but the fact that I know and I want to bring it to him, there's some, something mysterious, something powerful about that. So if you say, I really want to affirm somebody, the most valuable and valid thing you can do to affirm someone is to pray for them. Some years ago, when we had a congregation in Illinois, we had Sunday night services, and the congregation was just kind of getting started and growing, and there were a couple of hundred on Sunday night, and it was a small enough group that I could say, are there any prayer needs here? And one young man Jim White was sitting in the second row, 26 years old, and he raised his hand and said, I'd like to pray for Paul Todd. Now, Paul Todd was 65 years old. This would have been in 1970. He was 65 years old. Paul Todd had been a tank commander in the Second World War under George Patton. He had fought all the way from North Africa up through Italy, up into, up into Germany. Finally, after four years, Paul had been blown out of his tank, and um, he was deaf in one ear because he was a tank commander that would ride with the hatch open so they could see and snipers would try to shoot in that thing. They missed him, but they would hit the hatch and the sound of that bullet hitting the hatch would just just deafened him. But he was in the hospital for 13 months. And I asked Jim, I said, um, is, is Paul in the hospital? He said, uh, no, I don't think so. I said, well, is he is he struggling? Because sometimes um, sometimes he got depressed. He couldn't talk about World War Two without weeping. He said, no, I, I don't think so. I said, well, like, is he, is he physically hurting at home? Is that why you're asking? He said, no, I don't think so. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, having this con- <clears throat> I'm, I'm having this conversation in front of 200 people. Finally, I said, Jim, why do you want to pray for him? And he just grinned at me and said, I just like him. Well, see, that throws pastors off. I mean, you know, the guy, he's got to be dying of something. I mean, we can't just pray. What would happen if we just prayed for people we liked? How would that be? Affirmation comes in the form of prayer, and when it comes in the form of prayer, it's the highest level of affirmation you can give somebody. That's just how it works. I'll never forget coming home from my freshman year in college. I lived in Oakland, and I went to school at Cal Berkeley my freshman year. And I came home and walked into the house one day, 
and I couldn't find my mom, and my mom was always at home. And I walked into my parents' bedroom, and it was just a small bungalow, craftsman kind of house, but there was a walk-in closet in my parents' bedroom. And I walked over near that. I heard some noise, and I could tell it was my mom. And I could tell she was on her knees in the closet, and she was praying for me. It was I was 17 years old at Cal Berkeley. I was sowing wild oats, and by today's standard, there weren't very many oats, and there weren't very wild, Okay. But she was on her knees and she was praying, oh, God, you know, this is this is a standard mom's prayer. Oh, God, don't let Dick do anything more stupid than he's already done. You know, one of those. So I stand here tonight as a testimony to a mother's prayers in a closet. Words to God about you. The second kind of affirmation is words to you about you. Words to you about you. What we call compliment. The power of words in a human life, especially with smaller children, is profound. They've done studies. Some of you are educators here. They've done studies where they'll split a first grade class down the middle, equally intelligent, and they'll start telling one half of the class, that, that's tremendous art. I mean, you guys are just doing great. And the other side of the class, I say, Johnny, you know, you don't, you're not quite getting it. You're just, and within a week, this side of the class will be failing. They won't be producing. They won't, they won't be doing what they could have done. Just that little shaping when you're small, when it comes from a big person particularly, it's a powerful thing. Words have power. And when you listen to Jesus affirm Peter, in Matthew 16, he's talking about the church. And he says to Peter, I'm going to call you the rock, the stable person. Now, you have to understand, out of 12 disciples, all from the same county, essentially, from Galilee, there's a cross-section of people. But Peter is a natural leader in the group. It's clear that he's a natural leader. He just isn't quite there yet. And he's promising more than he can produce. And he wants to be bold. And, you know, and you read this all through the Gospels. And so we... Years ago, in, in premarital counseling stuff, we would give folks what we call a temperamental analysis test. It was called the Johnson-Taylor. I, I would submit that if we gave Peter the Johnson-Taylor, I don't, I don't think he'd do so well. I think he's too, way too volatile, not very stable in a lot of ways. And Jesus looks at him and says, going to give you a new name, going to call you the stable guy. And you can almost see the other disciples going, boy, I I don't know. I, you know. It doesn't seem that way to us. He's all over the map. How does that work? Either he's speaking something into Peter or he's calling something out of him by speaking affirming words into his life. Listen to how Paul says it in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. He affirms them with his words. It's almost mushy. Paul's a tough guy. Paul, uh, Paul has taken the whip from the Roman soldiers. He's walked a couple of times across what is now Turkey. I mean, he's tough. But he's talking to these Philippian friends, and he says, I long for you. I hold you in my heart. When you affirm somebody with words, and you're authentic, and you mean it, it can change them. It can change their whole lives. Some, um, some years ago, 
I, I went to a, a workshop in the Holiday Inn in St. Louis for building small groups. And in that workshop, we spent the morning doing the history giving thing that I talked about last time we drew our childhood family tables where we had grown up and all that kind of stuff. And after lunch, we came back and the leader of the group said, now, I want you to take the six chairs or six in a group. I want you to take the six chairs and I want you to arrange them in a different sequence. Instead of being in a circle, I want you to do the kind of the horseshoe. And out here in this chair, each of you is going to sit in that chair. And on the basis of what you learned about the other person's history, we want you to affirm this person in terms of a color. I see you as deep blue or bright orange or some positive thing. Or in terms of a quality, I see you as a strong person or a gentle person. Or in terms of an animal in a positive way, in an animal, okay? And each of you has to rotate through that chair and let the other five say something to you that's affirming. And you can't discredit it. You can't deflect it. All you can say is thank you. First person in the chair was a young man about 18 years old. There was a 19-year-old girl in the group, and she said, I see you as a dog. He said, oh, thanks a lot. And she said, no, 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 no. You have beautiful brown eyes, and I have a cocker spaniel at home that I love, and he's got big brown eyes, and I like to just hold him on my lap and just pet him and stuff. And the kid said, this is better. I like this. This is good. (laughs) The second person in the chair was a 28-year-old young woman who had been sent there. She was a worker in a church and she hadn't done well in her first year on a staff position. And they sent her here to learn social skills, relational skills. And uh, that same girl looked at her and this this girl, this this young woman was in her late 20s. And all morning she had just been griping and grousing or as Festus used to say on Gunsmoke, she was faunching and bellering. She did not want to be there. She was chain smoking just one after the other and just all morning. She's sitting in this chair and the same girl says to her, I see you as the color of your dress. She had on a silky kind of fall colored dress. It was in the fall, browns and yellows and umbers and all that. And she said, because I see you as a warm and spontaneous person. And that dress reminds me of a fire in our fireplace at home and I'd like to take you to my home on a snowy winter's night in Rockford, Illinois and sit in front of the fire and drink hot chocolate and eat popcorn and just get to know you. And the young woman took the cigarette out of her mouth and put it down on the floor and stubbed it out and said, say that again. Said, I see you as the color of your dress. I see you as a warm and spontaneous person. And I just love to take you to my house on a snowy winter's night and sit in front of the fire and drink hot chocolate, eat popcorn and just get to know you. And by the time she finished a second time, tears were streaming down that young woman's face. She said, nobody in my whole life has ever wanted to take an evening just to get to know me. I don't know where that grousy, gripey woman went that was there in the morning because the woman who was there in the afternoon was a totally different person absolutely i'd never seen anything like it in five minutes just like that when ruth and i were dating in college i struggled with stuttering i've told you this that from age five to about 28 i i stuttered significantly at various times and 
I was feeling a bit insecure about our relationship. And I turned to her at one point. We were driving along and said something to the effect, you know, I'd, I'd, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you s- still want to go with me because I s- can't talk. And she smiled at me and said very sweetly, oh, really? I hadn't noticed. And she was dead serious. And my, my door started getting unlocked. And I started to get out. And now I talk all the time because I've saved all these words up. And it's, I just, you know, it just, it just comes out. Words to you about you. The third kind of affirmation is not just words. And I don't know that you remember, but when I spoke a few weeks ago on character, Timothy, don't let people shoulder you out of the way because you are young. But be an example to the believers, an imprint to the believers by what you say. Those first two things, those are what you say. Words of affirmation to God on behalf of someone, words to someone to encourage them, to bring them out, to nurture them, to lift them up. And now we get to go to the what you do part. What you do. Words or actions towards you. I'm going to ask um, Lisa... Christofferson to come and join me. Actions toward you. And you have Peter. Come right over here by me, Lisa. Peter and Jesus have this exchange. And you remember that passage where in, uh, in John the 18th chapter where they come to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter wants to protect God, if you will. And he whips out his sword and he cuts the ear off the guy. Remember that story? It's a very cool story. You can almost hear Jesus going, oh boy. Yeah. Peter again, my lead guy, you know, he's a little impetuous, but he's the rock, you know, he's going to be better. And it says Jesus reaches out and touches the guys. The last thing Peter needs, the last thing he needs is for an attempted murder charge. He's got a lot of problems. He doesn't need that. But can you see the guy who got his ear cut off dragging him before the judge saying, this guy tried to kill me. And the judge says, what do you do? Well, he cut my ear off. Well, which one was that? He says, this one right here. He said, case dismissed, lack of evidence. That's what Jesus does. He destroys the evidence so that we can be whole. That's what baptism is about. That's how that works. But Lisa and Bonnie Northrup were talking to me the other night, and we were talking about things that bring value to people and actions done. And uh, I just said, could you help me out on Wednesday night? And so, Lisa, tell us. Well, thank you. Um, We had the privilege, um, as we do every year, uh, to give some gifts to people that we raised money and um, items for at home tour. Uh, Many of you here were part of our home tour this year, and and we were able to raise money for people overseas and also for locally. Well, Bonnie and I this last week had the privilege of going down to a company named or an organization named Praxis which is an um, anti-human trafficking organization in downtown Denver, Denver working with homeless youth. Because homeless, anyone under the age of 18, if they are um, involved in the commercial sex industry, are trafficked. So these, this company, Praxis, is actually working in the streets with the homeless youth. And 
So we had the privilege of taking them some money that we raised for home tour and some items that 970 had gathered um, through, throughout the season. And let me just tell you, the, the response was amazing. I, I just It was the first time I have ever done this before, and it blew me away. But when we brought in the items and we brought pictures, I, I have pictures here to show you. When we brought in the items, it was just a few, you can see just a few boxes here. And, and I have big vision, and I'm like, let's bring a truckload in, you know. But we had, I brought it in just our excursion. We brought these few items, and these two women plus one other woman are the three paid people working for all Denver for this industry, and then they bring in people from the colleges to help them, interns. But when they started unpacking some of these things, tears came into their eyes, and they were blown away by just the items that they found in the boxes. Then we were able to give them the check, and we explained um, how the home tour and how it works and how we raised money and that we want to give them this money, and they had no idea that we were about to do this. So when I handed them the check and told them how much it was, they both just, you can see on their faces, they both just burst into tears. Neither of them professed to be church going, but both of them looked at us and said, a church would do this for us? And it blew them away. They sent us an email uh, when, we, when we left just right after that, and they said, we've been going through what you've collected, all the wonderful items, so many great supplies. In addition to all this, there are bags full of handmade scarves and hats and mittens. They are beautiful and especially lovely because the intentions of the grace of the maker are woven into each item. We are blown away by your items and the money. You've given us over a year and a half of our budget. Thank you so much. Isn't that great? Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. When you take an action towards someone, it again recognizes their value. Sometimes we say words are cheap, anybody can talk, but when you take an action towards someone, that's powerful. Finally, it's actions toward your world. Actions toward not just you, but your world. When you get up every morning to go give your life away, when you get up every morning to go to work, that arena in which you work is critical. Peter, toward the end of John, says he's going to die for Jesus, and within 12 hours, he's not dying for Jesus. He denies he even knows him, and he runs away. And he goes back to what he thinks he knows. Now, I don't know how many of you have done this, but in my life, on occasion, I get so frustrated with this particular thing, I think, well, I'll just go do that. I'll just, I'll just go do that, because I know that. Well, Jesus, uh, Peter was a commercial fisherman, and he goes back to fishing, but he doesn't have a good night. On the Sea of Galilee, they fish all night. He didn't have a good night. And early in the morning, you know this story, you can read it in the last chapter of John. Jesus shows up on the beach to fix him breakfast. Okay? He gets a fire going. And then he, he calls. They're about 300 feet offshore. He says, catch anything? These guys have fished all night. You can hear the sound coming back because sound travels over water. No. And he says, throw the net on the other side of a boat. Well, these are not big boats. We're talking six or eight feet here. They've been all up and down the coast. But he does it. And fish hit the net. Turns out to be 153. It's very specific. 153 large fish. And Peter doesn't wait to walk on the water this time. He just jumps out and swims to shore. And they haul this net in. And Jesus says, bring some of those fish and let's have breakfast. And then they have this exchange going back and forth. He walks into Peter's world 
and does something that Peter can't do. When you affirm somebody's world, it's a powerful thing. I illustrate it this way, and then we're going to have communion, and then I'm going to come back and tell you one more story. I was probably 30 years old. By that time, Ruth and I had four kids. We started young. And uh, I walked in one day. I was pastoring this congregation near the University of Illinois, and I was just whipped. It was back in the day of three-piece suits. How many remember three-piece suits? You, you, you know, it was back in those days. And I walked in, and I tossed my briefcase over on the couch, and I just fell belly down on the front room floor. I was just tired. I just Now, if you have teenage kids, sir, and you fall belly down on the front room floor, they're going to go find mom and say, Mom, uh, Dad weirded out. Something, something snapped at work. He's laying in there on the floor. Better call the paramedics or something. I don't know, but he's in there. But if you have little kids and you fall belly down on the front room floor, what do they do? They jump on you. Why? Because the giant has laid down. If you have preschool kids, they're two and a half feet high. I'm six feet tall, so I'm two and a half times as tall as a preschooler. That's, relatively speaking, a 15-foot high guy walking in here saying, How are you doing, son? I say, I'm good. Have you cleaned up your room? No, but I was just going to. You know, I mean, this guy's, they're huge. And the authority and the power is vertical. But when the power goes horizontal and I have access and I can just climb on him and sit on his head and check his pockets, that's cool. And, of course, that's what God does at Bethlehem in Jesus. God the giant lays down so I don't have to be afraid. He comes in baby shape so I don't have to be afraid. And so we start playing the trip game. That's where you spread eagle yourself and the kids run around, jump over your arms and legs. And alternately, you raise your arms and legs and trip them, knock them down. You say, that's a weirdo California game. That's a... No, no, little kids love that game because they don't have far to fall. You just run around, down they go, bang, down they go, whack, over the... Pretty soon, wham, one of them goes into the couch, starts crying. You say, okay, got to stop. Somebody got hurt. You know, so... And they're saying, no, no, do it some more. I want to do... How many know this is true? This is... The story isn't in the Bible, but this is true. Pretty soon they run off to do something. I get up and I'm sitting on the couch. And Ruth has been in the kitchen all this time. She wanders in, sits down by me and kind of puts her arm around me and starts kind of snuggling up. And I'm sitting real still. I said, don't don't stop. But why are you doing this? I looked better then. You know, I said, you know, I just, why are you doing this? And she said, you played with the kids. I said, they're my kids. He said, no, 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 no. They're your kids when you come home. I'm here at home with four little guys. You've been out being God's man of faith and power. You're having business lunches. You're learning stuff. You're on the campus. You're leading people to Jesus. And I'm here at home trying to find a three-year-old two blocks down, naked in the weeds. And I have no idea where he put his clothes. How many moms know that's true? You can't find, where did they put their clothes? I don't know. They're just out there. And over time, we talked about that, and she said, Dick, when you come home and play with the kids, what you're telling me is that my world counts. When you come home and play with the children, I'm investing my whole life in them. And you're saying, I'm a, world, I'm a, I'm a worthwhile person. I'm, I came to the understanding that when I came home and played with the kids, what I was really doing was loving her. I didn't, I hadn't thought of that. I thought I was just knocking the kids into the couch. I had no idea. I wonder if that's what Jesus means in John 13, 34 and 35 when he says, by this will all men know that you're following me when you play with my kids. 
It doesn't exactly say that. It says when you love one another. Same deal. Here is the God who affirms us in Jesus with with words to the Father about us. I understand it. It says that he's sitting tonight as we speak at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, talking. See, 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 the, see the ball, the guy down there talking all this. Help him. You know, <laughs> saying, bless those people. He's talking to the Father, words to God about us. He's speaking to us through his words, words to us about us. You want to know why you're valuable? Read this. He takes actions toward us individually, and he takes actions toward our world. Tonight we're going to receive communion, and I'd like the ushers to come if they would. And uh, I'd like them just to serve you the elements. And as they serve you the elements, I ask that you hold both elements until all have been served and um, then we'll come back and we'll just receive communion together and then I want to share one last thought with you if you would elements your broken body given for us and your blood poured out transfused into us however in that mysterious way that your blood courses through our spiritual veins and takes away the toxins takes away the garbage in our lives and is infused with the oxygen of your spirit to give every cell new life. Thank you for taking away the bad and giving us yourself. Thank you for the great exchange where you took away all of our junk and you gave us your righteousness, your power, your presence. We thank you for it. As we take the bread tonight, recognize that this is his body and in some way because of his sacrifice we are now part of it take eat all of you in his name just as the Lord's table represented his taking our history are scrubbing it clean, taking away our sins never to be for, never to be remembered. So the table is his greatest affirmation. This is how he says it in Romans 5 eight. This is love. And love is an active verb. This is love. That while we were yet sinners, while we were still in rebellion, while we were still trying to be our own gods, Christ died for us. the greatest action that he takes to affirm us to affirm our worlds to make us whole this is a new covenant in his blood as I mentioned before, I mentioned last time this is an agreement with the king we can accept or reject the terms of the agreement but we cannot alter the terms of the agreement 
and the terms of these, Jesus said, I'll pay the price. I'll pay it all. You just respond. And we respond by taking the cup tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's just just take a moment and thank him in our own way. Would you do that right where you're sitting? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your calling. close with this story every once in a while you find someone apart from Jesus himself who so embodies in his or her person these qualities that I talked about tonight affirming in word to God affirming in words to you affirming in actions toward you and actions toward your world that you're just kind of caught off guard by them I met a man like that when I was 10 years old that's uh, 57 years ago. I met him at a camp for kids in Northern California. He was a pastor who loved kids, and he would take three weeks out of each summer and come and do kids' camps. His name was Roy. He dressed up like an army guy. He had the fatigues and the boots, and the, actually had a 38 revolver on his hip, which is always good for kids' camp. And he had a helmet. And he was a ventriloquist. He had a dummy named Jimmy. And Roy, you could tell he loved us. I mean, you know, we were 10, so the guys sat over here and the girls sat over here because girls were yucky and guys were yucky when you're 10. And so we just, but he would, he would tell us stories about Jesus. And he would tell us stories about the royal pig and Herman the horse and, you know, stuff when you're 10. That really, and, and Jimmy would talk every night. And, and he would teach us, Roy would teach us, the, like the books of the Bible, and he had this song. Come, let us Christians try to tell the books of the Bible we know so well. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Saint Samuel, First Saint Kings, Chronicles and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Vag, Zephaniah, Guy, Zechariah, Malachi, and you know that song. And, uh, <laughs> And we'd have, we'd have competition, and the girls beat us on the last night, like by three seconds. We'd sing it as fast as we could. Eight years later, when I walked onto a Christian college campus transferring in from Cal Berkeley, they had a Bible test. And one of the questions was, how many books of the Bible can you write down? And all around the room, you heard 18-year-olds going, because they'd gone to that same camp. Never underestimate what 10-year-olds pick up. And uh, I always sat in the front row because I liked Jimmy. And one night Jimmy talked to me. And this was way before Zoom and Electric Company and Barney and all this stuff. I mean, you know, it was before TVs, you know. And, and uh, Jimmy talked to me. And next day I'm the big man on campus. Hey, there's the kid the dummy talked to. Look, hey, you know. And I'm in the cafeteria line that next day. And Roy comes to me. And he says, Dick, it's great to have you sitting in the front row. I said, well, I like Jimmy. He said, well, Jimmy likes you. He said, always follow Jesus, Dick. You'll have a great life. 
I'm 10 years old. I'm going, oh, shucks, you know. Eight years later, I walked onto that college campus and met a tall, sandy-haired, green-eyed girl by the name of Ruth, who turned out to be Roy's eldest daughter. I didn't know he had any kids. I thought he just had Jimmy. I didn't know. And Ruth was a lot like her dad. She was affirming in word and deed and so forth. And I'll never forget, we dated for a couple of years, and I'll never forget going to ask for her hand in marriage on Christmas Eve, 1962. And I drove from Santa Cruz, California, over to Modesto, California, in the Central Valley. And I called her house, and she answered. And so I had to mask my voice. I said, hello, is Pastor Blakely there? He was a pastor. She said, I'll get him. And he came. I said, Pastor Blakely, this is Dick. Don't let Ruth know that I'm... He said, yes, sir, I understand. I said, I need to talk to you. Can you meet me at the old school on Kiernan Road? Just if you could come over. He said, is this an emergency, sir? I said, yes, it is. It's an emergency. He said, I'll be praying and I'll come. I said, don't let Ruth know. He said, yes, sir, I understand. He hung up. Now, Roy Blakely was a pastor, but he was a farmer at heart. He had 15 acres of what they called in the Central Valley of California, almonds. They called them almonds in that part. The rest of the world calls them almonds, but they're almonds there. And he'd come home and take off his suit and get in old grungy clothes and old greasy cap and drive around on the 15 acres they had. And he drove his old pickup out to the Kiernan, on Kiernan Road to the school there. And I climbed up in the cab of the pickup and he had on the greasy clothes. I said, Pastor Blake, I just want you to know I really love Ruth. He said, um, we kind of like her too. I said, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to marry her. He said, I think that could be arranged. I said, but you know, my parents are kind of going through it, and I don't think their marriage is going to make it. They've been married 29 years. I don't think it's. And I said, I got to tell you, I'm scared. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's hereditary. I, maybe. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And sometimes people can say one sentence to you, and it changes your whole view of yourself. He said, Dick, why don't you just love Ruthie and follow Jesus? And Opal and I, his wife, will love the two of you and Jesus, and we'll just walk with you. It's okay. I trust you. An affirming word, an affirming touch. And it'll be 46 years in July, and so far, so good. You know? But this idea of this person who could just do that. And, and when Ruth and I went to Washington in 1993, we didn't know what we were going to do. The, we were just going to go to this place that had no position and no title and no money and no staff. And some colleagues were saying, Foth, what is this thing? You're, I said, I don't know. I'm just, we feel like we're supposed to. And my father-in-law said, Foth, you need to go. He said, we need some folks in Washington to help the folks through there. You need to go. And so I went. He was a visionary. He saw things in people and in just in life that other people didn't see. And he affirmed it. So he'd meet the guy at the feedlot and just hang out with him. The guy at the gas station or the guy at the grocery store or the architect. Didn't make any difference the level or strata. Whomever he met, he just kind of hung out with him. Six months after we got to Washington, we got a telephone call early one morning in late January. That Father Blake, that his name was Roy Blakely, I dubbed him Father Blake after I married his daughter. Father Blake had died in his sleep of a heart attack. We got on the plane, we went home, and the grandkids were all there. There, there were five kids and 23 grandkids, and, and the grandkids used to love to go over to their house because granddad would, back in the days when you could do this, he'd pile them in the back of the pickup, you know, as many as he could get and go to the ice cream store or go to the candy store. 
or he and his wife, Opal, would be sitting there and one of the grandkids would walk in and he'd say, Mother, did you see uh, Jeremy just came in? She said, yes. Isn't Jeremy just the nicest young man? And they'd start having this conversation like he wasn't there. And the kids would just stand there beaming from ear to ear, listening to this. We got up that morning and Mom Blake said, you know, Granddad had all those hats that people gave him for, you know, everything from Crusader Sports to Gallo Winery that's in Modesto. He had all kinds of greasy hats. He'd just wear them around and said, you want any of Granddad's hats? And all of us took one of his hats. It was like this, but it was all grungy. You know, we all took a bunch of hats. We're driving to the funeral service. They had two, one for the general public. The church was about 400 people. A thousand people came. People from the feedlot and people from the gas stations and people who just knew Father Blake. And then they had a service just for the family, 200 family members. And they had um, 13 pallbearers, all the grandkids, the grandsons from age 7 to age 29 sitting in the front row. On the way to the service, I'm saying, what do I say about Father Blake? I mean, there's so much that could be said. And one guy, I mentioned this before, one guy stood up and just read 1 Corinthians 13 without comment and said, that was Roy Blakely. That's what love looked like. He looked like that. But on the way there, my father-in-law, because he was a farmer, he wasn't just a planter and a nurturer and a harvester. He was a salvager. Some of you farm guys, you're like this. I'd go to his house and the garage was just full of stuff. I'd say, what is that? He'd say stuff say, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to use it. I'd say, when? He'd say, sometime. The barn was just full of stuff. I'd say, what is that? He said, it's stuff. Valuable. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to use it. When? Sometime. And I realized on the way to that memorial service that he saw people the same way he saw things, that they were too valuable to throw away. And so he just affirmed them with his presence, and he affirmed them with his words, and he affirmed them with his actions. And so there sat the boys on the front pew. And when it got time for the service to be over and all the songs had been sung and all the prayers prayed, the boys stood up to carry out their granddad's body. And they all reached down under the pew and pulled out one of those old hats and just wiped everybody out. And the big boys carried out the casket. The little guys followed and we got out to the hearse and they put the hearse in the casket or excuse me, put the casket in the hearse, and they said, and my brother-in-law said, we're going to drive by the old home place one last time. About a few miles outside of town, it was in a farming area. And we drove north on Carver Road, out past the grape vineyards that were just starting to bud, and the, and the peach trees and the almonds that were just starting to, you could see a little green coming. As we got to the old home place at the corner of Ladd and Carver, The hearse slowed perceptibly like dipping the flag to a fallen soldier. And when it did, the second car with the boys in it started honking its horn. And all of a sudden, 60 cars were honking their horns. It just starts honking their horns. And suddenly the, the windows came open and these old greasy hats came out the window and the boys waved these hats. It started cheering, Granddad, you did it. Granddad, you did it. And all of a sudden, sunroofs on the other on the other cars came back and the windows came down and these cheers ricocheted out through the orchards. And I'm saying, what did granddad do? What granddad did was to love God with all of his heart and love his neighbor, the closest one, his family, his kids, his grandkids, like himself. And he affirmed them every chance he got. 
by praying for them every day, by talking to them every time they come in positive terms about who they were and what they could be. Every chance he got, he fixed them a chocolate milkshake. He took an action toward him or went out to get candy. And he always affirmed their world, gathered them in, called them to himself, and in that way, he called them to Jesus. Roy Blakely left his fingerprints on 23 grandkids' souls, and they will never get over it because he looked a lot like Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your people, for this moment, and for this evening. Help us, Lord, not just to be positive thinkers, but to be affirming expressions of your grace in our world as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go on His grace. See you next week.